Would you join me as we stand together to read God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. I do hope you have a Bible uh, with you this morning. It's always good to have one open in front of you as we study it together as uh, God's redeemed and gathered people. We come once again, as we've done in recent weeks in our study of Genesis, to an entire chapter, chapter 33, we want to look at together today. But unlike recent weeks, it's a rather short chapter, at least compared to what we've been looking at over the last month or so as there's only 20 verses that demand our attention this morning from Genesis 33. So let me read all 20 verses for us, and then pray for God to bless our time, and then we will begin our study together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I have met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. I keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and Esau took it. Then Esau saw, said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Well, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. And he said, well, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. And there the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, He bought 400 pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent, and there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that your word is our life, that it is living and active, that it corrects us, that it rebukes us, that it trains us and equips us for everything we need to glorify you in our life. Open our eyes to the truth, open our hearts to follow you, open my mouth to proclaim your word as you say I must with courage and clarity. 
that we might look upon Christ and in looking upon Him find life in His name. And we do ask these things in His name. Amen. You may be seated. It was in 1950 that a former prisoner of war from Poland named Sławomir Wawitz, he published a memoir and that was titled The Long Walk. And it was the story, purportedly, of how during World War II, he and five other prisoners of war in a Russian gulag had escaped and made the 4,000-mile walk south to freedom in India. And the story is filled with all of these instances that were difficult. Trials and temptations came along, of course, on that many-mile journey south that led the prisoners to wonder, are we ever going to get there? The question wasn't as much, when are we going to make it to safety? Uh, The question for so many of them was, will we ever make it to safety? And as we come to Genesis 33 this morning, that is the question at the front of Jacob's mind as the text opens. Will we ever make it home to the promised land to safety? Because in Jacob's life, for roughly the last 20 years, he had been under the slave labor in his uncle Laban's house. And at God's command, he had finally left that place and began the journey south to the promised land. But we've seen troubles, trials, temptations arise, not least of which is the news that Esau is marching towards Jacob with 400 men. And the last thing Jacob has heard from Esau's lips or certainly about coming from Esau's lips, was that Esau intended to kill Jacob should he ever come back home once father Isaac died. And so as the scene opens, Jacob is surely wondering, will we make it back safely? And I suppose that all of you at some stage and moments of your life have asked such a question spiritually. Will we get there safely to the fulfillment of God's promise? Because there are certainly times, aren't there, in the midst of affliction and sorrow and, and suffering that you remember God's promise. Fear not, for I will be your shield. And yet the sorrow seems to only increase, the affliction only abounds, and you wonder, will I get there safely to the fulfillment of God's promise? Or it could be even in times of temptation, Tempted to a particular sin continually and you hear God's promise, you recall God's promise that he will not let you be tempted beyond which that you can bear. And yet the temptation continues to come. You continue to succumb to the temptation and you wonder, will I ever make it safely there to the fulfillment of God's promise? Or it may even be anxiety and worry and doubt and fear that weaken your faith and you recall God's promise to the one who is weak, I will increase his strength, I will increase her strength. And then the doubt and worry only plague your soul to such a degree that you feel as though you're crippled and paralyzed in your faith and you wonder, will I ever make it there safely to the fulfillment of God's promise? Well, the good news of Genesis 33 is that all those questions and so many more we can answer by saying yes and amen. Because the main point of this passage is found in the first few words of verse 18. If you look down once again, as Jacob arrives safely back in the promised land. That's the main point of the passage. God brings his people safely home. Because students, you might remember that God promised to do that in Jacob's life. 
It was back in chapter 28. If you look there, verse 15, it was the stone staircase dream. God appears and stands next to Jacob. And what does he say in verse 15? But behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go. For I will not leave you until I bring you back to this land as I have promised you. And so we see again... Another story in Genesis of God being faithful to fulfill his covenant promise to his covenant people. He brings him safely home. It's like that old hymn, if you know it so well, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. I am bound for the promised land. And for God's people, they will get there. It may come through toils. It may come through snares. It may come through difficulty. But God's people will make it safely all the way home. That's the good news of this text. Now, if you glance down at all of chapter 33, what you need to know, it comes in two parts. The first half is about Jacob and Esau's reconciliation. The second half is about Jacob and Esau's separation. So I've just put down two simple words to kind of guide our way through the chapter. The first is acceptance, and the second, it's arrival. So we want to look at, first of all, Esau's acceptance. Look again at verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked... And behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So kids, do you remember what Jacob experienced just the previous 24 hours on his journey back home to the promised land? He was about 100 miles north of Esau's homeland in Seir. So he sent scouts down south to tell his older twin brother Esau, hey, Jacob's coming through. Well, these scouts, what do they do? They return and say, we've got a message for you. Esau is marching towards you with 400 men. That understandably so, Jacob takes with murderous, militant intent on Esau's part. So Jacob separates his family into two camps. We saw this last week. He essentially says Esau's forces are great enough to take at one camp, but they're not going to be able to take both. And then it was at night that Jacob separated himself from the camps. And what did he do? He wrestled with an angel all night long. And then as the dawn was beginning to rise, he, he clung to the angel of the Lord, which was the Lord himself. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. He was, he was longing for God's promise of provision and protection to actually come to pass as Esau was approaching. And you remember, the Lord blessed him spiritually. He touched his hip that he would limp physically. And then, of course, Jacob goes on his way. And then when you get to chapter 31, it's almost as though... In the course of the narrative, minutes later, maybe hours later, certainly not long later, he lifts up his eyes, and what does he see? But Esau is on the march. Esau is on the way. And you would think, at least I would think, that Jacob, after encountering and experiencing that wrestling match with the angel all night long, the sovereign grace of God in blessing him, He would stand resolute, strong and tall in his renewed faith as he waits on God's protection and provision to show itself as Esau's coming. But you'll notice if you glance down at verse 2, that's not what Jacob does. He's clearly still full of worry, fear, and anxiety. He takes his family and he staggers them according to his affection. So at the very front are Zilpah and Bilhah and their children. Then it's Leah and her children. And at the very back is Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, and the beloved son, Joseph. What you need to know is what Jacob is essentially saying here is, well, if he's coming with murderous militant intent, at least he's not going to get all the way back to Rachel and Joseph. 
And you have to think, don't you, as Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and these other sons are seeing this extreme favoritism on Jacob's part, if it's not really there that the seeds were sown of discord and disunity that we're going to see by chapter 37 lead them to want to kill their brother over this multicolored coat and bad report that he gives. So the family is staggered according to Jacob's love. And then Jacob himself, you'll see in verse 3, he goes ahead of the family towards Esau. He bows seven times, the text says. Even the language in the Hebrew is his, his face is touching the ground seven times as he's getting closer and closer to Esau, which was a common way that a vassal would greet and entreat himself before his Lord. Because he's expecting, isn't he? Esau comes to do me harm, and he's trying to placate Esau. He's trying to arrange things as though he genuinely needs to protect his family. God's provision isn't, provision isn't enough. I, I hope you know how normal this is in the Christian life. Even Isn't it sad how often we can meet with God in such a powerful way, like this Peniel experience of encountering God, and it's only just a few minutes later that we seem to slip and slide back into that same old sin. And it's happening here with Jacob. But he experiences, doesn't he, God's promise now being realized because Esau's not coming with a killing intent. He's coming with kissing delight. Look at verse 4. It says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, kids, you want to look down at verse 4 and notice it's this like volley of verbs. Five are really important as it talks about Esau's heart towards Jacob in this moment. He runs, he embraces, he falls, he kisses, and he weeps with Jacob. Now, a fivefold volley of verbs in this short compass of one verse is actually a quite significant thing in Genesis because the last time it happened and was applied to Esau was at the end of chapter 25. And you might know it was there that Jacob stole Esau's birthright, certainly swindled Esau out of his birthright. And there was a fivefold volley of verbs that began to tell us about the enmity between these two brothers. Because it's in verse 34 of Genesis 25 that Esau ate, drank, rose, and went on his way and despised his birthright. And those five verbs that sealed the enmity. It seems like now five verbs come along that unseal it. As there's harmony that he intends to bring to his brother. And not just that. You see, he's kissing his brother Jacob. Because it was a kiss in chapter 27 that Jacob put on his father. A kiss of deception that, that sealed Jacob's grasping for the blessing that belonged to Esau. It was a kiss that sealed Esau's murderous intent. And now it's Esau's kiss of Jacob that unseals that murderous intent, that they might be reconciled to one another. Such is this kind of arresting scene of reconciliation in chapter 33. And you might be in here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't say that you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel that we proclaim is one of this kind of reconciliation. That you might be standing before the Lord today or you even might be fearful to stand before the Lord because of things you've done, things you've said. And you'd be right to be afraid for your sin has separated you from God. There's enmity between you and the Father. But the good news of Christ Jesus is if you bow down before Him today and you turn from your sin and you trust in Him, what you will find is a Father who will wrap you up 
in his arms of gracious embrace, just as Esau did with Jacob. They hadn't seen each other for 20 years, Esau and Jacob. How long this moment of reconciliation lasted, we don't know. But at some point, Esau separates, as it were, from Jacob. He lifts up his eyes and he says, Who are all these people with you, brother? You know, the last time he heard about Jacob or saw Jacob, he was leaving Father Isaac's tents with only a walking stick to his name. And now he's got this massive horde of people, this an immense number of animals. He's clearly a very wealthy and rich individual. Well, Jacob acknowledges, doesn't he? Look at verse 5 at the end, God's grace. He says, These are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Not part of his scheming, his grasping, his grabbing. It's all of God's grace. Well, then Esau continues to ask questions. He says, well, what is meant by this company that you sent me? Or this camp is really what the word might say there in verse 8. Now, students, do you remember what Jacob sent in chapter 32? He hears Esau is marching with 400 men. Jacob takes 550 animals and splits them up into five different waves And he sends them with servants as an atonement present, as an appeasement offering to Esau. And Esau's like, what are you sending me all this stuff for? Because you'll see in the following verses, he's like, I got plenty of stuff. I'm rich. I got everything that I need. Why don't you just keep it to yourself? And in the following language of verse 10 and 11, it mirrors in certain ways what we saw last week in chapter 32. Jacob was there wrestling with the angel face to face saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And now it's as though he's wrestling with Esau face to face, spiritually saying, I'm not going to let you go until you accept my offering. For look at what he says in verse 10 and 11. Jacob says to Esau, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Now, we'll come back to the end of verse 10 later on when we get to the conclusion of the sermon. But pay attention to the words Jacob uses in verse 10 and 11. He's using a different word, isn't he, that he wants about what he wants Esau to accept. You see in verse 10, he says, accept my present. That was the word that was used mostly last week in chapter 32. But what does he say in verse 11? Accept my blessing. Last time we heard blessing was in chapter 28, I'm sorry, chapter 27, about Jacob stealing Esau's blessing. It's as though with this exorbitant, excessive gift that he's offering to Esau, he's saying, I'm wanting to pay you back for what I took. It seems to be a gift, really, that's a gift of reparations. I took your blessing, now I want you to take it back from me. And Esau, you'll notice in verse 11, he takes it, simply takes it. Which I think underscores why we ought to view it as some sort of a a reparation-like gift. Because the ancient customs of the time, when you're giving gifts like this, the expectation would be, if Jacob's giving a gift to Esau, Esau, common courtesy, would mean he would give gifts back to Jacob. But he's not giving gifts back to Jacob because I think Esau is granting that this indeed is payment back for the wrong that was done to him. Such is Esau's acceptance. That brings us to the second part of our text and Jacob's arrival. 
and its arrival not without some degree of awkwardness, at least at the start. I thought this week of an instance in my life many years ago that something like this sort of happened. I had been scheduled with a soccer teammate of mine. We were due to make this appearance at a soccer camp that was quite a ways away from the Metroplex. We were going to have to drive many miles and several hours to get there. And this was a teammate of mine that, you know, we weren't the closest of friends in the locker room. And so when he called me up the day before, he says, hey, why don't I come over to your house and pick you up and we'll drive all the way out to this appearance together. And I thought to myself, rightly or wrongly, I don't really want to do that, you know, drive all the way with you there and back so many hours. And so, you know, I said, hey, we live like so far apart from each other. It's totally out of your way for you to come pick me up and then drive that way. You know, I've got something else going on in the morning. I think I'm going to make it to the camp late anyway. And at least one of us will be there on time if you go by yourself. Because again, rightly or wrongly, I just didn't want to kind of put it bluntly and baldly. I'd just rather drive by myself and go at my own speed all alone. And if you've ever had some type of experience like that, or it just seemed easier to try to let him down softly, that seems to be what Jacob is doing here with Esau, because notice Esau's proposal in verse 12. He says to Jacob, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. Maybe Esau thinks that Jacob has shown up because he intends to visit Esau, and I'll go back to the promised land. We don't exactly know that, but we do know that Jacob really isn't interested in going back to Seir with Esau, because you'll see in the following text, he says, hey, you're going at a military-like army pace. You're going fast. I've got kids who are frail. They go slow. I've got animals. If we drive them at that pace, they're going to die just in a day. So why don't you go ahead and then look at the end of verse 14. I'll follow until I come to my Lord in Seir. So I'll get there eventually, Esau. It just may take me longer. Well, Esau, not to be Laid aside so quickly, look at what he says in verse 15. Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. And Jacob says, well, I don't have need of any more people, right? I mean, he's got servants and family all around. What, what do we need? Just a few more hundred men to escort us back to Seir. And so Esau finally relents, and then he leaves that day to go back to his homeland. But notice, Jacob doesn't go as he said he was going to go down to Seir. Look at verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, which is in the opposite direction. It's only about five miles in the opposite direction, but it's certainly in the opposite direction that he seemingly was giving Esau the impression compared to the direction that he would go. So you want to ask the question here, don't you? Is it just another example of Jacob's deceitful-like character, you know, deceiving his brother Esau? And it's possible that's true. The ancient rabbis actually said it was Jacob's righteous deception of Esau in this moment. Probably because Jacob's family, the nation of Israel, were arch rivals so many centuries later with Esau's family, the nation of Edom. That what the rabbis said in verse 15 is that Esau was leaving men behind to ensure that Jacob was going to get to the right spot of ambush where Esau would enact his vengeance fully and finally upon Jacob. And so Jacob was right not to allow that to happen because he was going to get out safely. I actually tend to think what's more likely, it's hard to know in the text, isn't it? Because the commentator doesn't give us any sort of commentary on it. The narrator doesn't. Is that Jacob and, and Esau are simply participating in this kind of 
odd to our culture, but common to theirs, ancient Eastern negotiation system of rather than give an insult in the hearing of other servants and the hearing of other men and the hearing of other families, they're just kind of engaging in this diplomacy where they're both realizing, well, yeah, I don't really care for Jacob to come all the way back to Seir. And yeah, I don't really go, want to go all the way back to Seir. Jacob would think to himself, so let's just talk about, well, I'll get there eventually. And then Esau departs knowing Jacob's probably never going to show up eventually. But that's no big deal. They're reconciled with one another. Esau has accepted him. And whether or not it's deception, whether or not it's diplomacy, the point that we're meant to see is Jacob is back on the road to the promised land. But he's not there yet, because continue on in verse 17. He journeyed those five miles or so north to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is is called Sukkoth, which just means shelters. It seems as though, if you understand he's building a house for his family, that Jacob would have settled in Sukkoth for a while. And you wonder why he stopped short of the promised land so easily. Again, we don't know. We do know that when the nation of Israel left bondage and slavery in Egypt, their first stop after that night of Passover, Passover as they got out of Egypt was here in Sukkoth, where so many decades and centuries before their patriarch in the faith, Jacob, had made shelters for his family. Maybe it was months later. I think it's more likely that it was years later. Jacob gets going back towards the promised land. And notice verse 18. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Now, if you stop right there, you realize God has fulfilled his promise. Jacob is back in the promised land because kids, when Genesis uses the language of the land of Canaan, that's just the promised land, the way that the author talks about it. So God has made good on his promise to bring his people safely home. But you might remember Jacob made a vow to Yahweh in chapter 28 that said, I'm going to come back, yes, to the promised land, but I'm going to come back to Bethel. I'm going to meet you where you met with me in the stone staircase dream." It's there I'll worship you again at this altar that I erected. And so you wonder also, why did he stop short of Bethel? He gets into the promised land in Shechem, but Bethel's only about another 20 miles away, only another day's journey beyond Shechem to Bethel. Well, he stops there for reasons we don't know, but he seems to be once again almost retracing his grandfather Abraham's experience because it was in Genesis 23. Abraham buys a portion of the promised land. You see in verse 19, Jacob buys a portion of the promised land there outside of Shechem. In Genesis 12, not long after Abraham crosses over into the promised land, he builds an altar to worship Yahweh near Shechem. And doesn't Jacob do the exact same thing? Notice verse 20, there he created an altar and he called it El Elohi Israel, which just means God, the God of Israel, or might be better translated something like, for our understanding, God is the God of Israel. It's as though he's placing this kind of spiritual flag in the ground, saying, I am not like the other Canaanites, worshiping pagan idols and deities, but I worship God, Yahweh, who is the God of Israel. I wonder if People that live nearby you, people that come across you with any degree of consistency would understand that you likewise have placed a spiritual flag in the ground that declares my devotion belongs to Yahweh alone. That I don't worship like the others do, the gods of this world. That my trust and my love belongs to another Lord. 
But the point is, isn't it? God has brought Jacob safely home. God has graciously brought about Esau's acceptance. God has graciously brought about Jacob's arrival. He is safely, once again, safe and sound in the promised land, just as God said he would be. I had a friend who planted years ago a church in North Carolina. And he was one of those church planters that was very creative, very energetic, hit the ground running from the first start. And when he got there in his local city, he began to use any means at his disposal to get the message out about his new church plant and the motto and mission and vision of his local church soon to gather. And so through his website, through his social media, through printing t-shirts, through even bumper stickers, he, he gave the message that he was wanting people to know about this church plant soon to launch. And it was this message in one simple sentence, no perfect people allowed. And you might have seen other churches likewise saying something, no perfect people allowed. And maybe you snickered in such a way, it's kind of cheeky way to market the church. But I do hope you know it is a gospel truth. It is absolutely a truth about Jacob. As God has brought him home to the promised land. Jacob is not returning as a perfect patriarch, is he? He seems to over and over just trip over himself. Trying to continue to protect his family. Trying to protect his really most loved ones first in his own power. And we're going to even see, Lord willing, next week. It's in Genesis 34 that I think we get to Jacob's lowest point. In this story, this sad and tragic story of happens, what happens with his daughter Dinah. And that's after they're already in the promised land. God clearly isn't about the business of bringing only perfect people home to the promised land. What kind of people then does God bring safely home to the promised land? That's the question I want to ask and answer in two ways as we begin to close. What kind of people does God graciously and gladly welcome into his homeland? Well, number one, God brings spared people home. Spared people home. Look back at verse 10 at the end. You see, Jacob says to Esau, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now, skip just up a few verses to verse 30 of chapter 32. It's language that is quite like what Jacob said when he named that place of wrestling with the angel Peniel. He said, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Because Jacob knew just the night before, to look on God's face was to see the dread and terror, the fear of Isaac from a previous chapter that meant no sinful person can see him and live. And yet, Jacob was spared. And then when Esau comes bringing this tender love and reconciliation, it's as though he says, I'm looking into your face and I'm likewise seeing the dread of God. Because I don't deserve to stand before you. And yet you have accepted me. You have spared me. It's only a spared person that God brings back home. Because kids, you know that there's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do to cause God to spare you. It must be you looking into the face of another God's glory in the Lord Jesus Christ that will cause God to not look upon you with judgment, but to look upon you with grace and mercy and kindness as He spares you from that encounter of judgment so that seeing God face to face and the fullness of His glory becomes a vision now of everlasting blessedness as God brings spared people back home. Number two, God brings changed people home. 
changed people. Look back at verse 18, this theme verse of our chapter. And Jacob came safely to the land of Canaan. You might have a footnote in your Bible that says that word safely can be translated something different. It actually has this kind of quality to it, this weight to it that is different than us just saying he made it home safe and sound. It probably is more literally he made it home guilelessly. But that really doesn't help a lot of us out, does it, to know that Jacob made it home guilelessly. Jacob made it home peacefully is really the point. And it's talking about the antonym of deception. He left the promised land deceptive. He has now returned a changed man. He's peaceful and loyal, no longer full of deception to his others. God brings changed people home. Those that he changes, of course, by his sovereign grace alone. And so it was many centuries later that the Lord Jesus Christ, Jacob's true offspring, stood at the very place that Jacob bought in verse 19 of our text. It was there at Jacob's well that he began to speak with a sinful Samaritan woman. And you remember what he said to her, don't you? I am the Messiah that everyone is looking for. I am the one that can change you. Bring the right transformation that you need. For I alone can bring living waters that satisfy. I alone can rescue you from your life that is full of sin and bring you into the promised land. And Jesus himself, as he later on would teach in his ministry, he seemed to have Genesis 33 in his mind because when you get to Luke chapter 15, what is Jesus' probably most favorite and famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, these parables that he's speaking in that moment to expose the hypocrisy of the self-righteous Pharisees. This, this parable of the prodigal who goes away. And remember, he begins to come back home. And the exact same verbs used in verse 4 of our text, Jesus employs of the father who sees the lost and wayward son all the way off. As he runs, embraces, and kisses that wayward child. That by grace he might bring him safely all the way home. And of course, he can only do that through the work of Jesus Christ. So God continues to be faithful to his promise, doesn't he? He will certainly bring us safely home as we find ourselves by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you that you are a God that is strong and mighty and gracious, that your provision and protection are ours according to your promise in your Son. Raise our trust in you, our reliance upon you, that we might be peaceful before you as we look forward to our heavenly home. Give us a heart that longs for the new heavens and the new earth. Give us each a desire to see you running towards us as we come to you and faith and repentance and your reconciling love sweeps us up in your arms of grace. Do that, we pray, that you might be honored. Do that, we pray, that Christ might be exalted. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.